0: Today is September 16th, 2019, and my guest is advertising executive and author Rory Sutherland. He is the vice chairman of the Ogilvy Group UK and writes the Wikiman column at The Spectator. His latest book, which is the subject of today's conversation, is Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Rory, welcome to Econ
1: Talk. It's a great joy and honor to be on, as I can say. I think they say this in British talk radio, um, long-time listener, first-time caller.
0: Yeah, we, we say that in America too. Oh uh, <laughs> now, I found myself in a peculiar position reading your book. It takes a lot of cheap shots at economists, uh, some of them deserved, of course, but uh, there is a, a great deal of insulting of economists and exalting of the insights of behavioral economics and psychology, two fields that I am somewhat skeptical of. But I like this book a lot anyway, and, and I would describe it as a book to help you think outside the box, and in particular, to become aware of what motivates others as well as yourself. And in that sense, it's very much in the spirit of Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. The book helps you That's look.
1: High praise. I wasn't really expecting. Yeah, well, that. I'm very much indeed.
0: The book helps you look below some of the lazy models of economists that focus focus exclusively on monetary incentives. And thereby ignoring much of the human experience if we are not careful. Is that a fair summary?
1: Yes, I think... Um, Maybe an overly I mean, generous one. I- <laughs> I'll be absolutely I'll honest. I mean, part of the reason for the cheap shots at economists is that if you work in marketing or advertising, it's worth remembering that the assumptions of economic models, which is that people have perfect information and make decisions in an atmosphere of perfect trust, are creating a kind of fantasy world where marketing and advertising needn't exist. You know, if everybody knew simply what it was they wanted and how much they're prepared to pay for it, and that their desire for the object was independent of context or meaning, um, then patently in such a world, you wouldn't need any marketing activity at all. Things would simply sell themselves. And so if I have a certain animus towards economists, it's not really towards you or towards eminent economists, It's towards the extent to which a kind of shallow economic thinking has permeated business school curricula, for example, and has enabled people to treat um, what is something which exists in economic theory as a kind of default decision-making frame. And that seems to me extraordinarily dangerous. Um, I mean, uh, apart from anything else, you know, once you get into understanding human perception, it's very, very clear that human perception is not remotely objective. And therefore, the assumption that you could only improve the world by by more consumption, for example, rather than more meaning, seems to me deeply dangerous.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I would say that some of your view on economists is something of a straw man. I think most certainly most good economists understand that people have imperfect information are imperfectly rational. And, you know, I think the difference in our profession right now is not the focus of your book, but it's worth mentioning are the people who think that because of those imperfections, we need some top-down intervention or rather on the other side, those interventions are often, those imperfections are often smoothed out by markets. And despite the uh, irrationality of individuals, life works surprisingly well uh, through the market process. And you're, I'd say you're, you're pretty uh, aware of that. Uh, despite- oh,
1: no, no. There's, there's <laughs> very little that's anti-free market in the book. Uh, in fact, I'd go so far as to say that one of the things that's noisy about economics is that it likes markets for the wrong reason, um, which is that it likes free markets because they're notionally efficient, whereas I like markets because they're inventive. And uh, the two narratives, you know, it's a perfectly, you can understand why free market people leapt on this idea of efficiency through competition. In fact, competition seems to me deeply wasteful if you look at it in a short time horizon. Uh, What's magical about markets, of course, is that uh, they solve problems through a period, uh, through a process of kind of market-tested innovation. Yeah, trial Um, and error. It is absolutely trial and error. But it's a bit more than that, too, because I think one of the extraordinary things markets do, which I, I think this is one of the reasons I'm uncomfortable about economics trying to model itself on Newtonian physics, is quite often what markets find is more than one solution to the same problem. And I think if you approach business problems with the mentality of someone who's trying to make it look like physics then one of the dangers is that you're always trying to optimize something or find the single overarching solution that works for the average. And in many cases, I think markets and business do something much more ingenious than that. They solve the same problem for different people in a different way. I think that's quite deep. I
0: actually want to go back to the first thing you said, though, which I I really love, which is that, and it's a problem, I think, with economics education, is that we often teach our students what makes markets great is that they're, quote, efficient. And that's usually summarized by some jargon-filled statement like uh, maximizing the sum of consumer and producer surplus. Uh, and then another group of economists comes along and says, oh, but that's only on the blackboard. They don't really work that way. And my answer is, well, of course they don't. What, what a horrible and foolish idea it would be to assume that they literally do that at every moment. It's a tool, and if you take the tool as a uh perfect description of reality you will be grossly misled. If you take it as a general point that uh, markets allow people to exchange with one another in ways that are mutually beneficial and then add your point, which I think is very deep and so often forgotten in the classroom and in casual conversation, which is that it in, it's inventive. It's not just we're sitting around in a room swapping stuff, uh, new stuff's getting created, customizations being allowed, people are, are being... Given the chance to find what works for them as opposed to what works, as you say, for the average, and that profusion of choice and experimentation is what makes markets really delightful.
1: And actually, the process of invention does not only apply to goods themselves, but to the marketing and presentation of those goods, by the yeah, way. Yeah,
0: we'll get to that. I think that's another part of the book I, I, that's I'm, very… You know,
1: I'm, I, 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 in the process of writing the book, I became quite Austrian on this topic. <laughs> but the idea from that Ludwig von Mises quote that there's no useful distinction to be made between the value created in a restaurant by the man who cooks the food and the value created by the man who sweeps the floor… I mean, I'd extend that to the man who designs the menu or the man who designs the signage. Actually, in order to create an enjoyable eating experience, food is only part of that, and context, expectation, a whole load of psychological factors are just as important. In fact, I I mean, I occasionally go in and and mischievously um, kind of write the opposite of a Harvard business case study on things like Uber, where I argue that Uber is very largely a brilliant psychological innovation, which changes the nature of waiting so that if you can watch a car approach the experience of waiting 10 minutes for a car is inordinately less frustrating than if you're in a state of ignorance and that's as significant to uber's success as anything to do with kind of scale or economies or the standard kind of narrative that you get in a conventional uh, business school write up
0: yeah it's a fantastic example i and you talk about it in the book i with respect to uber i when I would describe Uber, say, to my parents who hadn't tried it, I would tell them how great it was. You don't have to call anybody. You don't have to pay. And you talk about how that the non-exchange uh, of money directly is very is an important part of the experience also. But after I'd summarize all those things, I'd, I'd often say with utter delight and ex- way more exuberance than the other things, and while you're waiting, you can see the car getting closer. and And I realize from your book that, that is not just like oh that's pleasant. It's actually an it's an enormous part of of what makes the product attractive, even to the point where, as you mentioned a number, a number of examples, it may not even be accurate, may not be true. It could just be a little a little it thing be going, it up, To yeah, be honest, it, it still right. works. It could be screenshots, photoshopped yeah. or whatever. But it's but it's really comforting to see that. And it's two things, of course. One is oh you can see it getting closer. The other part, of course, and this is I think the deeper part, is that the variance is 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 visible when you're waiting for a cab it's you know you you think it's going to be 10 minutes but there is this haunting fear in the back of your mind or my mind and i thought i was abnormal turns out there's two of us a haunting fear me and you the haunting fear in the back of your mind that what if it's 25 and the uber eight minutes you know for your driver
1: what if they've canceled me exactly and i don't know now, I said something very similar to British Airways, which is when you have a departure board, if you can give any kind of estimate of time of departure, even if it's slightly pessimistic, it is inordinately better than the single word delayed in terms of our psychological well being. Yeah, I, I uh, don't delayed, I, delayed effectively makes me think it's probably cancelled, but they're trying to break <laughs> it to me gently. Yeah.
0: You know. uh, well, when I'm on a plane and we're sitting and there's some uncertainty uh, sometimes it's a repair, sometimes it's a traffic issue in the control tower, but a lot of times they'll just say uh yeah we're uh, we're on hold right now, we'll keep you posted i'm thinking that's not that's not good just just give me some give me a range even give yeah. me an idea, give me some idea of what's gonna happen and i and I reading your book reminds me and forces me to understand that most of that is about my absurdly Human need for control, uh, which I sometimes think I'm the worst one in that area. But turns out, to, as I said, there's two of us. You also have
1: this issue. No, um, and there's a interesting book. There might be it, three. Uh, Luca Diana, which I think is called something like the control heuristic, which suggests that a very deep part of human motivation is uh, attempting to maintain a sense of certainty. Yeah, it's huge, um, and that we, we have an incredible human urge. We really, really hate being in a position of uncertainty, which may explain weird, you know, weird behavioural economics findings. Which is that uh, you know people prefer uh, known bets to unknown bets. Uh, What what is that? It's a great fallacy, isn't it? Named after the uh, the chap who published the Pentagon Papers, Uh, Uh, Daniel uh, Ellsberg. Ellsberg paradox, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, interestingly, um, I don't know if you've come across this guy at the London Mathematical Laboratory, but a guy called Ole Peters and a bunch of collaborators are arguing that in a non-ergodic environment where utility is to some extent multiplicative, not additive, variance reduction, of course, is perfectly rational.
0: And it's true. I know his you, name. I've, I've been told to to well, interview him. You must but interview
1: him, yeah. I don't, I don't, he, he, he crops up in the book, because I'd always had this vague hunch that things like sunk cost bias and indeed loss aversion under certain circumstances, couldn't really be described as a bias because, first of all, evolution would have corrected them, surely, if they'd been that consistently bad. Um, and so there's something there which is, if you think about it, if, if you think of fortune as being intertwined and path-dependent, then the avoidance of significant misfortune uh, is a perfectly rational fear.
0: No, I think this is a, a thing that I think, many of us have trouble with who are analytical, and it's certainly a problem that economists have. Um, you don't call it this in the book, but the way I would call it is um, an obsession with expected utility and expected with the average outcome, that we, which you do talk about, and a misappreciation of the costs of the downside. And one example in the book, which I just love, and I think it's extremely... Um, It's trivial on the surface and very deep, actually, which is if you ask 10 people to hire one person for your company, you get an extremely different result than if you ask one person to hire 10 people. In both cases, you're going to get 10 new uh, employees, but they're going to be a very different mix. Explain that.
1: Yeah, so it seems to me that when we make a single hiring Our instinct for variance reduction is very, very high, or blame avoidance, you might say, in a corporate setting. And so we're going to make a very conservative hire. If you hire 10 people, you're going to go much wider, and you're going to look for complementarity rather than conformity. At a very simple consumer level, I make no apology, by the way, for looking at trivial consumer behavior, my argument being, you know, nobody criticized Darwin for looking at Finch's beaks. Fair enough. You know, that very, very small trivial things can be highly revealing of, of far more significant things. And a very simple example is, you know, if, you, if I forced you with your available resources to buy one house, you'd probably buy a pretty conventional suburban house, not too close to work, not too far away. If I gave you the option of buying two houses, what you certainly wouldn't buy is two suburban houses that were very similar. <laughs> you'd, pres- you'd possibly have a crash pad right next to your place of work and a place on the beach. Yep. And similarly with cars. You know, One of the problems, I think, for car manufacturers is that when two- and three-car households became the norm, the saloon car, which was the kind of default catch-all vehicle, Uh, suddenly became vastly less popular. People wanted more extreme cars. And the same thing happens to mid-market retail. When people shop more frequently, they go up-market and down-market more and the mid-market retailers get squeezed. And so understanding that dynamic seems to be important, particularly with hiring, if you want to actually create diversity without quotas. If you simply change the choice architecture within which people appoint employees, and interestingly, talking to a large consulting firm, they said that their, their graduate intake, which they hire in groups, is spectacularly diverse, and their partnerships, which they appoint one at a time, is fairly conformist. You know, I think it looks a bit like the front row at the Nuremberg rally in terms of ethnic diversity. That might be partly explained by um, simply the mode in which we're choosing. And it would be perfectly natural uh, on anything for humans to have that as an inbuilt instinct. In diet, for example, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the more choice you have available, the more you're going to eat widely. In all sorts of things like foraging behavior, I think you'd probably find the same thing manifesting itself. And it struck me as a really interesting point, which is just that we tend to be blind to the effect that choice architecture has over the choices we make. Um, we seem to have evolved, in fact, to kind of make the best shot we can. Daniel Kahneman, I think, called it what you see is all there is, or wiziati hmm. And I've noticed this because one of the things i discovered in this is it takes quite a lot of mental effort to spot when a the design of a choice path on something like a website is actually stupid. And the example I cited, I think, in the book is... Most airline sites will ask you, where do you want to go, when do you want to go, and what class of travel do you want? Now, if you're a business traveler, you can answer those three questions. Asking consumers what class of travel they want before they know the price difference is, when you think about it, utterly insane. I mean, if it's £5 more to go in business class, I'm sitting at the front, right? If it's four times as much, I'm going to be in 23D or whatever. But as a consumer, to ask that question... And consumers don't go, that is a stupid question, I do not have enough information to make a decision. They simply go, I better put economy down because, and this is what was actually costing one airline we worked with, about 15 million pounds a year, was the fact that people put economy down because you can't really as a consumer pay for business class or premium economy until you know the ratio of that price to the economy price. Well, now, you- again, an economist would say that the amount you're prepared to pay to travel in premium economy should be a fixed amount proportionate to length of flight. I don't think it is. I think it's actually a proportion of the economy price we're happy to pay. But we can have that argument separately. Um, but the interesting thing to me was that you asked that question, they were simply presented with economy prices, they booked an economy ticket, and in many cases, they weren't thinking, well, this is absolutely stupid, I need to go back now and check the business class price. People don't do that. What was actually happening is airlines were throwing away premium revenue by asking a question before people had enough information to answer it. And the strange thing is consumers react to that by going, well, I'm just going to make the best fist of this. I'll put economy down for now. And it's very interesting that we don't actually say, we very rarely say when asked a question, I need more information to answer it. I think that's what Kahneman spotted when it came to uh, making recommendations about who to hire and so forth.
0: So I just want to mention one uh, Britishism, which is a saloon car. Oh, sorry, yeah, right. I was going to say in America, I think it's a sedan. But uh, it brings up a point I want to expand on, which is the change. I've talked about this before on the program. The As people acquired more televisions, as we got wealthier and a house had more than one TV, uh, in the early days of television, the whole family would gather around the single TV set. Everyone would watch it. Uh, That eventually changed. A lot of people had enough money to, and the price of TVs fell in real terms so that people could have more than one television. And so what happened is, is that people could watch their own shows. And this simple change uh, changed radically what was available to watch. Because in the old days, you had to make something that was neutral enough that everyone, no one would veto it. Then suddenly you could customize Material To what people wanted to watch, and as you say, you get highbrow and lowbrow, and you get everything in between, but you don't just get the, the middling choice, the average sort of dull choice, and Funnily that's enough, happening across the economy all over the place, but especially – in digital it's entertainment, more
1: complicated that that in a funny kind of way. In that uh, the sudden arrival of the large flat screen plasma TV slightly re-centralized viewing again because you you gathered in the place which had the massive television. Yeah, that's true. And then what happened, of course, is people got an even bigger television and they moved their old television <laughs> into the second <laughs> yeah, room. Yeah. Now, what happens, by the way, if you're in the television manufacturing market, is you have a huge problem because people's main television is now so huge that there isn't really a second room where it belongs in a British (laughs) household. And so you've hit a kind of weird stalemate where it's very difficult to get people to upgrade their televisions. Um, But, no, that's a fascinating case. It's very similar, I think, to something I mentioned in the book, which is Nassim Taleb's idea of minority rule as well, that um, if you think about it, I always have the recommendation, unless you're by the sea, don't open a fish restaurant because there's always one person who doesn't feel like eating fish. Out of any party of six,
0: it's a bit of a strong, uh, a strong uh, sure.
1: recommendation. But no, no, no. But if you think about it, one of the reasons pizza is so successful as a food is not only that people love it; it's that very few people veto. Correct. I agree with that. And I, so that. And so what well, I mean, it, it's it's a notable phenomenon. For example, all of New Zealand lamb is actually halal, simply because there's an asymmetry of of choice. Yeah. In the, in that, non-Muslims aren't particularly bothered by eating halal food. Technically, devout Sikhs are an exception to that, but I'll park that one. Um, Whereas uh, Muslims will only eat halal food. So therefore, for purposes of simplicity, you make the entire supply halal. As long as the costs aren't too high. And so, no, that's an interesting one, which is that your point in television is that you had to make something that was broadly acceptable to everybody. Um, and, And, of course, if you think about it, I always describe that as... In, in restaurant terms, there's what you might call McDonald's versus KFC. Um, McDonald's, broadly speaking, unless you're vegetarian or vegan, everything on the McDonald's menu is kind of reasonably acceptable to you. There's nothing that's wildly polarizing like chicken on the bone, for example, or very highly spiced food, yes. which some people don't like. Whereas KFC um, is slightly different. It's, it, it, in a sense, it's much more authentic as a fast food, but it has that slight discriminating thing, which is it's harder to find a large party who will all agree to go there because there will always be one or two rejectors. And by the way, that applies extraordinarily to comedy and political correctness because if you think about it, it would be very, very hard. It's one thing to say, right, we're going to serve a restaurant and obviously people who come here will be happy to eat some of our food. What I think political correctness is sometimes demanding of comedy is that you can't serve any food to which someone somewhere might be allergic. Now, if you think about it, that restricts what you can serve to an extraordinary degree. Now, I would say of comedy, look, you've come to a comedy club, you have to accept that the context is different in a comedy club and that people would accept things said in a comedy club which wouldn't be acceptable in a job interview. And therefore, your standards of kind of... uh, anal fussiness need to vary according to context. But the universalism of political correctness more or less says, regardless of any context, no one can say anything in any space where even theoretically someone might might object to it. Now that seems to me, when you think about it, an extraordinary curtailment of free speech. Yes. Because if you imagine the same parallel applied to food, where people went into restaurants and said, you know, you're serving peanuts here. Um by the way, I've always found it weird that um that airlines do serve peanuts, No, oh, they're cutting back I like, I, I, they're cutting back i like I like peanuts, but I'm happy to forego peanuts for the duration of a flight, yeah we'll okay, say- on the grounds that I totally sympathize that someone who may have a fatal anaphylactic shock doesn't want to experience that at thirty five thousand feet so in some cases i you know I regard that as a bit weird, but at the same time, I don't think you can demand of airline food that you can't serve anywhere on the plane anything to which anyone in the, on the globe might be sensitized. Because that seems to me, you know, utterly, you have to ask the question, well, where does that end?
0: So I, w- I want to take another example from the book, which I loved, which is related to this, uh, this idea of choice and uh, variety and also uh, consumer uneasiness. You gave the example of uh, just ordering the economy seat because it's it's just – The safer choice. But you have a a wonderful example later on. You say uh, many apparent paradoxes um, of consumer behavior are, are, are best explained by similar mental mechanisms. A few years ago, we discovered that men were reluctant to order a cocktail in a bar, in part because they had no foreknowledge of the glass in which it would be served. If they thought there was even a slight chance that it would arrive in a hollowed out pineapple, they would order a beer instead uh, I love that line. You say, one remedy was to put illustrations or pictures of the drinks on the menu. Some trendy venues have since solved the problem by serving all cocktails in mason jars. The same sort of mental calculus explains why it is so difficult to get people to move their current account from one bank to another, paying a higher rate of interest or to shift their broadband pre- provision. A 1% chance of a nightmarish experience dwarfs a 99% chance of a 5% gain. And I just think that that point about avo- avoiding the worst cost Worst-case scenarios, an extremely important –
1: it goes back to our point about probabilities. it's because we evolved in a non ergodic environment, and it's perfectly rational in my view. If you think about it in very childish mathematics, 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 times times 2 is a bigger number than 1 times 3 times 1 times 3 times 1 times times 3. If you're multiplying – sorry, if you're adding, um, variance doesn't matter. If you're multiplying, it does. Um, it's also worth remembering that in a non-ergodic environment, two or three bad bad outcomes in a row uh, lead uh, 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 significantly worse than spaced misfortune. Um, There's a wonderful case, which i it's very hard to say without swearing because I know it's a family show. There's a guy, I may not mention him in the book, called Francis Fulford, and his family have occupied the same, I think it's 10,000 acres in Devonshire, that was given to them in something like 1240. And he's inherited this, and they, the family still owns it, and they still own the house there uh, by direct descent over about 800 years. And they asked him how on earth you'd manage this achievement. And he points up at the ancestral portraits and says, He's a very sweary man, so I can't report him uh, um, verbatim. He said, But we've had. Up, he said, well, we've had, if I look back at my ancestors, we've had loads of idiots. We've had drunken idiots. We've had gambling idiots, philandering idiots, idiots who get in, get in prison for treason. He said, but we've never had two in a row. <laughs> and he spots, I think, that very central fact in Misfortune that, of course, when we appear to be irrational, worrying about a, 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 a downside outcome, um, we're not just factoring in the risk of that outcome, but the risk that it's accompanied by several other downside outcomes. In fact, uh, one of my weird things, I don't, think, I don't think Ole Peters dreamt for a second that he'd be used to justify this. Uh, and I apologize to him if he doesn't like it. But one of the arguments I make is that we use brands very heavily as a form of variance reduction in Absolutely. making purchases. No, for sure. Now, I, don't, I don't think when we buy a Samsung, television, I don't think we actually think this is guaranteed to be the best television in the world that I can buy with $600 or $1,000, simply because no manufacturer can be that good forever. But what I think we are paying a premium for is the fairly reliable certainty that however good it turns out to be, it won't be dreadful. And if you think about it, two other driving human behaviors, which are habit and social copying, also make perfectly good sense once you accept the fact that people are trying to reduce variance of outcome. And so I suppose it wouldn't be a surprise if the human brain had evolved always to accompany every question with a kind of unspoken, what's the worst that could happen? Mm -hmm. And obviously you're ordering a drink, it's a drink you rather like the sound of, and you order it and it turns up in a hollowed out coconut. Well, you now have to endure 20 minutes of ridicule from all your friends. You know, that will that will outweigh any possible enjoyment you might have had from a more adventurous drink. Okay. One thing, by the way, at the risk of being irrelevant, there are things in consumer behavior which always baffle me, which is when you think about it, the martini is an extraordinary macho drink. I mean, it's basically neat spirit with a bit of an olive in it. Yep. Now, you know, there's nothing remotely... Kind of effeminizing about the drink as it stands. Yet strangely, it's served in a glass where, unless you're auditioning for the next James Bond film, no guy can stand at a social event comfortably holding a martini glass and not feel slight social awkwardness. Oh, but so that's, why on earth we, we know that glassware with that drink is a mystery to
0: me. We know the answer to that. It's just it, it's in your book. It, you know, it's this, It's the same idea. It's the same idea. In many examples that you give. It's that. Uh, I'm, I'm so comfortable
1: in my masculinity, I can hold this glass. You think it's costly signaling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's a hell of a cost, isn't it? But, but no, I, I think costly signaling might might be the only possible explanation, that it's something that you have to be extraordinarily self-confident in order to do it. But
0: I'd also add that for most of us, we've never thought about that, and the habit of that martini glass is so safely ensconced as a James Bond, Sean Connery thing, we're okay. But I, I want to come to an answer. I want to come to a what seems to be a counter example to your story, which is uh, Starbucks. When I I'm, I'm a semi coffee drinker, meaning I have a cup of coffee every once in a while. My wife is a serious coffee drinker. My sons are very serious. My daughter very serious. They go into a when they go into a Starbucks, uh, it's actually a little bit like I was going to say it's like going a surgeon going into an operating room and knowing what everything is for. Uh, that's not quite true because, for them, Starbucks is a little bit of an easy environment. But when I go in, I don't know what any of the things on the wall are. You know, there's there's a mac- macchiato. There's a frappuccino. There's an Americano. There's a, corda- ta- a cortado. And I have no idea. Like you say, they, half of those are going to come in at the equivalent of a hollowed-out pineapple. And I'm not going to like them either, which is another negative. So I just get a –
1: I just, I just get a cup Your of coffee. be.: i just get a cup of coffee. Don't worry. You only have to wait. Your problem will be solved when the United States discovers the flat white.
0: Yeah, no, we uh, have we, that. We have that. Uh, that might yeah, be I, – that's, I that. that's on the list. I don't know
1: what that is exactly.
0: It doesn't well, sound good see, either, by good the way. It's
1: because you don't have to stipulate size. It's <laughs> just uh, a microfoam-topped. Large cortado, effectively, I suppose is probably the best way to describe it. Um, less milky in the cappuccino, far less milky in the latte, and with micro foam on top rather than froth and it is a pretty good what you might call fallback default in the coffee ordering stakes because there are no follow up questions when you order a <laughs> but flat it's wine. not
0: just it's not just the follow- up it's the complexity I, I think there's a faux sophistication that that Starbucks is selling for the for the customer who goes in and can and can navigate the complexity of those choices in other words I,
1: I, no i mean there is a thing which of course freud called the um, the narcissism of small differences yeah there we go and there must be a little bit of that going on with you know oat milk and you know other forms of you know lactose free dairy that the uh, extent of making stipulations serves to suggest you're yourself highly sophisticated um, and I mean, having said that, of course, it's worth remembering that we still cope making those choices, even though I think someone calculated that the number of variants you could order at a Starbucks is more than eighty thousand if you took every single combination of flavoring and size, size and, yeah. and and base coffee now, of course. The reason, if you presented Starbucks coffee like a Chinese restaurant menu, numbered one to 80,000, yeah. none of us will be able to choose. But we do it by, I guess, kind of elimination by attribute. And we'll probably choose, you know, hot or cold. I mean, the, the order could vary, you know, hot or cold, milky or not, uh, big or small. And we kind of go through some sort of checklist and arrive at something which is at least tolerably close to what we wanted.
0: Fair trade versus incredibly exploitive. Because I love the incredibly ins- exploitive Colombian bean. Uh, there's a great life hack in the book, which I uh, – you don't present it that way. But – oh, yeah, a couple life hacks I really like. Uh, I love your point that if you want everything in your kitchen to be dishwasher safe, just put everything in to start with and whatever survives – is, okay. is dishwasher safe, uh, by
1: definition. It's I, I Darwin, like, dishwasher Darwinism. Can't go wrong.
0: I love that. But there's, there's another – there's a much, I think, deeper one um, and a little more practical. Uh, you're talking about uh, perception versus uh, reality, and that, that makes it sound like it's a trick. It's not a trick. It makes it sound deceptive. It's not deceptive. You say the following, making a train journey 20% faster might cost hundreds of millions – but making it 20% more enjoyable may cost almost nothing. And I think that's um, unbelievably, again, it's not, on the surface, it seems kind of obvious and simple. It's not. I think it's quite deep. So talk about that. And I can tell you're a big train lover.
1: No, I mean, it's interesting because in a sense, I became accidentally famous from a kind of joke I made at a TED conference, which was merely to say, if you have a $6 billion budget to improve what was then the, the London to Paris Eurostar train journey. The 6 billion was spent effectively on um, a faster track between London and the Channel Tunnel. And my only argument was there was a hedonic opportunity cost there. By assuming that all of that money had to go into journey time duration reduction, you were making an assumption about what benefited humans, which I think suffered very badly from quantification bias. It's very, very easy to quantify and model time and duration. Now, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that speed doesn't matter at all, but I'm suggesting that speed matters in a very nonlinear way. I was in Austin, Texas, and I discovered I wanted to go to San Antonio and discovered there was one train a day to San Antonio from Austin, and it made the 85-mile journey in something over three hours, which is, you know, I, I mean, the Donner Party were faster than that. Uh, you know for chunks of their trip um now that i'm not i'm not suggesting that there isn't room for improvement there in speed i think there's huge potential to join two city pairs like that in the us with a reasonably fast rail service so you could do it in an hour okay you know if you think about it i mean austin's what the 11th largest city in the us um san antonio's the 7th i think Uh, So I said, jokingly, look, putting Wi-Fi on the trains, which would have cost literally 0.1% as much money, would probably have had as great an effect on people's inclination to go by train rather than by aircraft. And then I joked and said, well, actually, you could take a billion dollars of your budget, hire all of the world's top male and female supermodels, and get them to walk up and down the train handing out free Chateau Petrus to all the passengers. And not only would you have <laughs> saved five billion pounds, but people would ask for the trains to be slowed down. Exactly. I love you that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's worth remembering, you know, cruise ships, if you think about it, they you, you know, liners used to compete for the Blue Ribbon, okay? Suddenly, Boeing and the jet engine essentially made the blue ribbon as a transatlantic metric irrelevant. And so Cunard, to some extent, invented the cruise ship industry because they said, we basically can't sell on speed anymore. We have to find some other comparative strength. And what advertising does, of course, is it focuses you on the comparative strength rather than the comparative weakness. An advertising campaign that said the Queen Mary it's so fast would be a ridiculous advertising campaign. <laughs> or so we, we made it. We made it five percent faster. Come 5% try 5% us out. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, what that means is you're getting worse value for money um, because I'm paying for the trip as much for the journey as for the destination. So what what advertising does is it it it, it affects what we pay attention to the original latin is about that and then what we pay attention to becomes in our minds more important because we're paying attention to it and so advertising can perform this kind of alchemical trick of turning literally turning a weakness into a strength by telling a different story about it that would be avis for example we're number two so we try harder um, you know, if you think about it very simply, we're number two in rental cars. Is Avis' is number two in rental cars is an ad for Hertz. Yep. Certainly in you know, 1960, if you're thinking about availability of cars, number of outlets, the ability to service obscure airports, that's a Hertz ad. But you add four words that say, so we try harder and make the distinction about customer service and effort rather than about scale. And suddenly you've turned a weakness into a strength. With a name like Smucker's,
0: it must be good jam. Brilliant. Exactly. I've forgotten that one, actually. Yeah. And we had
1: reassuringly expensive was the Stella Artois <laughs> lager brand in the UK. And um, Salman Rushdie, would you believe it, when he was a copywriter for Ogilvy, wrote the line, fresh cream cakes, naughty but nice. <laughs> so he obviously understood this effect.
0: I'm gonna um, go, But I want to I stick with trains for a second because it course, comes it, it comes back to our – point about control, you have a minor suggestion in the book, which is particularly apt for uh, trains, and particularly apt for trains in the UK, and I think in the United States it's incredibly frustrating that you show up in the United States It works like this, you have a train that leaves from Penn Station at a certain time, if you miss it, you're cooked. Which is yeah. odd. Which is odd, because unlike San Antonio to, uh, to Austin... New York to Washington, trains leave every hour more often, and yet, for some reason, your ticket for that one train is is crucial, and, and yet there are empty seats on a lot of trains that are going from those two cities during the day, and well, it indeed, induces… Indeed
1: in yield management practice, if someone turns up early and goes and sits in an unoccupied seat, you're actually improving the capacity of the line. Absolutely. Now, if, if, allowing people to travel late is slightly dubious because obviously you don't want that to happen because you're selling a perishable good which is a train seat but if i mean i had the bizarre experience of being in houston on a continental flight back to london and i had a 24-hour layover in houston i just said just for interest if you've got any capacity on the flight back this evening and they said oh yeah we got loads oh brilliant okay i'll go back this evening how much is it six thousand dollars Now, I quite enjoyed my 24 hours in Houston. I rather like the city, in fact. Fabulous city, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely wonderful place. And, and, um, And actually, some of the best meals I've ever had, too. Fantastic. But the interesting thing to me was that if you had those seats and they were patently going to be sitting empty because 30 people weren't going to turn up in the next 25 minutes and demand business class seats on the Houston to London flight, Why wouldn't you at least meet me halfway and say, well, tell you what, pay $300 and you can go now. And so there's something about pricing. And by the way, there's also something about pricing, which I think is ridiculous, which is if you do miss your train, the fact that the value of your ticket immediately goes to zero, I think humans perceive as an injustice. But it's worse than an
0: injustice. It induces this anxiety that you point out. And people would be
1: happy to pay a little bit more for a more flexible ticket. So I'm just uh, going to... Strangely, by the way, it's even like that on the Japanese bullet trains, where there is a train leaving for Kyoto pretty much every five minutes. And they demand that you absolutely specify in advance which train you're going on. Now, that's partly because of allocated seats. But in an age of mobile phone apps, you'd think you'd be able to switch trains pretty much with three or four clicks on a mobile phone screen.
0: Well, I'm going to turn tables on you here because no. I, I want to make sure we get in a uh, a reference to the Chesterton fence. Now, I've mentioned the Chesterton fence. Uh, I knew nothing of the Chesterton fence until a few months ago. Now it's become uh, – it's soon going to, I think, be on the a revised version of the EconTalk drinking game, if there is one, because uh, it, it seems to haunt me. It, it's a beautiful and deep idea, this idea that if you come across a fence that seems to have no purpose, the fool – the reformer, says, oh, well, this doesn't have a purpose. I'll just take it down. Whereas Chesterton points out, you know, there's a reason it's there. It may not be obvious. It may not be obvious to anyone alive even, but it may turn out that there's a good purpose it serves, that it stuck around for so long. And when you tear it down, you're going to find that out and you'll be sorry. So I do want to raise the possibility that even though these ideas would seem to improve train travel— the fact that they haven't been implemented suggests that maybe there's a cost to them that we, you and I haven't thought of. However, I would also point out that in the United States, and I suspect in the UK and probably in Japan, they're not very competitive. And so the ability to expect the trial and error will lead to an evolutionarily satisfactory structure for the travel is um, – maybe not so Uh,
1: there's also a thing however which i suppose you could almost say is the obverse of the Cheston's fence which is i don't know if you're familiar with this extraordinary soviet era problem solving methodology called triz no i think it was someone called altshuller who was a stalinist era scientist who was tasked with looking at problem solving and unfortunately um some of his problem solving caused him to suggest that stalin era um uh, politic, uh, politicians could do slightly better, which earned him as a reward 25 years in the gulag. But uh, one of his interesting observations is a thing which we occasionally call in my business lateral category analysis, uh, which is that problems have mostly been solved somewhere else, but no one's transferred them from one domain to another. Yeah. And so there is something very strange. I mean, one of the interesting things is, is now is biomimicry that quite often you can study really obscure pieces of nature and you can discover solutions to physical problems. The, the strange beak of those Japanese bullet trains I just mentioned is modelled on the kingfisher, because an engineer who was a very keen bird watcher noticed that when kingfishers dived into water, they barely created a ripple. And so they borrowed that actually to stop the trains making a hideous noise when they went into a tunnel which was disturbing nearby residents. And so, interestingly, if you think about it, there are categories where, for example, the airline industry, which is highly competitive, has solved the problem very well, and the rail industry has yet to catch up. I mean, strangely, I'm just, <laughs> just before I came on, I posted a tweet to ask French people why the French motorway system doesn't think of charging differentially by time of day. So you have a, a flat fee for traveling between, say, Calais and Lyon, which doesn't vary whether you go at 2 o'clock in the morning or at peak time. Now that seems an extraordinarily missed you know, opportunity to me to borrow yield management from the airline industry and apply it to French motorways.
0: Yeah, there might be a cultural reason for that, but uh, who in knows? In France, there
1: often is. Yeah, it, no, could just, is true. it could just be
0: they haven't thought of it, which is always, you know, in economics – The oldest economic joke in the world are the economists walking down the street with someone and says, look, a $20 bill. And the economist says, don't bother picking it up. If it were really there, someone would have picked it up already. But, of course, someone has to be the first person to pick it up. And so sometimes there are $20 bills lying around, and entrepreneurs uh, pick them up. In less competitive environments, they can sit around for a little bit longer. Uh, Rory, I want to talk about your marriage. Well, you say in the book, if you want a simple life, unladen by weird decisions, do not marry anyone who has worked in the creative department of an advertising agency. For good and ill, the job instills a paranoid fear of the obvious and fosters the urge to question every orthodoxy and to rail against every consensus. This becomes tiring, especially when the same willfully perverse thinking is applied to everyday household decisions. And I just want to confess that as an economist… You know, I can ruin a lot of movies for my wife, you know, and I have, you know, where I'll say that's not the way it really works. Or if that that wouldn't have happened in the real world. Uh, most movies that have some application of economics are deeply troubling to an economist. Um, I'm just curious if if there's any uh, if, if you, why you wrote that sent wrote that paragraph.
1: I'm sure you could ruin most movies by actually taking an economist with you. Uh, (laughs) I remember doing it once uh, in the, uh, I I think it was the late 80s film Betty Blue by pointing out that they're, decision to open a piano shop in a remote area of france was patently ridiculous yes, there you go. since the catchment area for <laughs> the catchment area and the likely market within their catchment area for buying a grand piano probably enabled them to sell at most one every year <laughs> so that was me being the economist there you uh, go. ruining a romantic french art house movie by pointing out the uh, the uh, eminent economic foolishness of trying to sell a declining product in a completely inappropriate location so yeah we can all do that um, now it's interesting in that that that, in, that that thing which is instilled on you if you work at a creative department in an ad agency what you are encouraged to do and the, the the muscle in your brain that gets very heavily exercised is the business of looking at everything the opposite the way around um so now of course in a sense I mean, a lot of problems are solved that way archimedes in the bath is is a case of stop fixating on the crown and look at measuring the volume of stuff that isn't crown for example you know that actually triz makes this point that uh, in fact uh, a very common problem solving uh technique is simply to uh, uh is to focus on not x rather than x and so uh It does instill in you, even in your private life, a slight obsession with looking at everything backwards. The worst case of which was, of course, just after we'd had young children, my wife sends me out to buy a a, a wide slice toaster and I come back with a bread slicer arguing that what we need isn't a wider toaster, it's narrower bread. Now, for all sorts of reasons, this was a totally ridiculous thing to do. I mean, uh, having two very young children around with a sort of effectively a circular saw device sitting in the kitchen was never going to be the best idea to begin with. But it does it does force you to do that a lot. And of course, it's an interesting question, which is: I mean, I was asking people about this just the other day. Should you? How should you use the London Tube map to buy a house? And there are two answers to it, in a way. I want to buy a house near the Tube, or everybody else uses the Tube map when deciding where to live in London. So what I've got to do is actually look at what isn't on the Tube map. And uh, in many ways, if you think about it, South London, without becoming a sort of London transport bore at this point, South London's rail network is very, very well supplied with trains, none of which appear on the underground map. (laughs) And you can probably buy insanely undervalued property next to a railway station south of the river, which is actually half the journey time into work versus, say, Fulham, which is on the Tube. Okay, And the reason you're getting that bargain is partly because you're using a different uh, model of choice to everybody else. And so you're looking for what's undervalued. And I think there's something really interesting as a general rule about this with all models, and I'd include economics in this, that when you develop a model of something, as it, now, okay, there are a few cases, there are a few paradigms in the world like Newtonian physics, where what's true is universally true, regardless of context or time or setting, okay? With a lot of models, the more people start using them, the more you'll find gains not at looking at what the model tells you, but at looking what it leaves out. I think think there's, there's enormous potential to, I often call what we do, the science of knowing what economists are wrong about. If you've got a decision to make and you say, we've got a product in, this was in KFC Australia actually, we've got a product that isn't selling, what would an economist do? He'd drop the price. And I said, well, try doing the opposite. Try putting the price up weirdly when you put the price up demand went up now that's surprisingly common particularly when you have a decision in a menu environment where we partly use price to navigate i'd argue that people go to fast food restaurants if you like for two slightly opposite reasons one of them is in search of a bargain and the other one's in search of a treat and if you price something right in the middle it fulfills neither of those two criteria Mm -hmm. okay so you can make the mistake of pricing something too low. Now, an economist would never even look there because dogma suggests that uh, that's impossible. And so I, I've always argued that all maps, you know w- w- and the map is not the territory, as we all know, all maps through overuse create distortions in behavior. And the opportunity may come in actually saying what's really interesting here isn't what's on the map it's to look at what the map leaves out, because that's where the market opportunity lies.
0: Well that's a very nice that's a very nice insight. I, I want to come back to your South London point, though, which is of that the, the, the natural economist's response to that is you're suggesting, and you know the jargon for this in economics, which I'm sure you know, is there's an arbitrage opportunity. That's another way to, to summarize your point, that there's some gain, potential gain that has been unexploited, and of course it's another way of saying there's a $20 bill laying around. Those inex- You're arguing that there's housing in South London that is relatively inexpensive relative to its value, relative to its proximity to things people value, which, of course, could be true. Uh, it would be certainly true if everyone used the metro map, the tube map. And and they were unaware of that other uh, set of – simply unaware,
1: which could be. It's not that they don't – Well, I can more or less prove that, in fact, because (laughs) there was a case where they took a set of railway lines, which had existed for about 25 years, uh, and had been called Silverlink Metro. And they made it into a kind of circle, and they they called it the Overground, and they added (laughs) it to the London Underground map. Oh, nice. When those lines appeared on the London Underground map, Usage went up by four hundred percent in the first month alone, right, so what you've done was absolutely extraordinary if you think about it. You'd created something like three billion pounds worth of infrastructure, mostly with ink yeah or with digital or with the digital equivalent yeah and so there is an extraordinary opportunity, I think in many cases to look at choice architecture to say um, at what point is Uh, choice creating... I'll give you a lovely example of this, actually. There's a website called seat61.com where a man who's, you know, more enthusiastic about railways than is strictly healthy (laughs) gives you advice on how to make rail journeys across Europe. And one of the reasons this website is so vital is because heat gives you advice from a human perspective, whereas an algorithm gives you advice where it assumes that time minimization is the greatest objective the only thing you care about the only thing that matters and so nearly every single uh, website will tell you to get to bordeaux from london by going into paris and out again this means you've got to change stations get a taxi which isn't easy in paris for various reasons um and um, also you've, you've got to get all your luggage into a cab and haul it to another station you can change at lille which involves a one hour 20 minute wait in a slightly slower train but that involves a walk of maybe 50 to 100 yards now the reason his website's so essential is he tells you that whereas the algorithm never will and so one of the things that really worries me is that our markets partly intelligent because human decision making is messy and markets can then aggregate preferences from a whole bunch of people who've come up the problem from a different angle When you actually make choice uniform by dint of forcing everybody to go through the same set of questions in the same order, do you actually make markets stupider? Because the distortions of the question-asking process become more and more widespread. And I have argued that the London tube map should actually vary at random every couple of years to encourage people to experiment with different journeys there are huge behavioral biases there because but there is a really interesting point there which is that i've heard that you can't sell a house in the uk for 825,000 pounds and that's because the property websites have increments of 50,000 at that point in the price range and people will either search at at, at 850,000 and go high low or they might be starting at 800,000 and going low high But neither of those people will discover an 825,000 pound house. So you've ended up not with a price-demand curve, but with a price-demand ziggurat. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Which is kind of weird. And actually, what you actually need is you need different property websites which encourage you to choose property using I live in this extraordinary kind of grade one listed house. Partly because architectural quality comes very low down the list of parameters people use when searching for property. So I see that as a kind of decision-making arbitrage, essentially.
0: I think the general point, which I think is, is quite interesting, that we get into grooves of habits, on, certainly on the web and certainly in real life, grooves of habits of – I would call them uh, – you use the word algorithm – Right? Some algorithms are specified and some are just habits, the things I do in a natural order without thinking about it for a second after a while. And you're suggesting that sometimes you want to shake that up. Sometimes those habits need shaking up and they're gains to be had. They're not necessarily if – the, if the algorithm is created from uh, the, from the uh, top down, it may ignore some crucial parts of the human experience that might emerge yeah. from the bottom up.
1: So I have two ways in which I would improve um, prop- the property market. Uh, one of them would be I demand that property websites threw up random web- wildcards, which didn't always meet your criteria precisely, mm-hmm. but forced you to compare in a slightly more weird and random way in a sense, mimicking what used to happen. Because how did you find a house in 1978? Well, there were no websites. You drove around. You drove around, (laughs) you looked for signs, or you went into a town and you happened to see a property in the window of a realtor. I've got the vocab right there. An estate agent, as we call them. You call them a realtor. Or you might have discovered from a friend that some guy called Dave was thinking of selling his house. But there were all sorts of ways in which you discovered it. And weirdly... The market composed of lots of messy decisions may be a better market overall than one that's made up of a lot of neat but uniform decisions.
0: Yeah, another way to think about this is the role of filters, right? Yeah. We're so used to filters on the you – know, in like, uh, obvious examples, Airbnb, I'll choose how many bedrooms I want, whether I want to share with someone or not share, have the whole house to myself, etc. And that's a very normal way – to simplify the 80,000 choices that are available at Starbucks or elsewhere milk no milk you know wet you know white dark sweet not sweet etc but as you what you're saying one way to say what you're saying is is that sometimes there's things we care about that we don't have a filter for or they can't be objectively listed
1: no. i mean there isn't a parker score for architecture as yeah. there is in wine for example yeah. and so yeah. as a result this quantification bias I, I think it's sometimes called, isn't it, the, um, after the uh, Minister of Defence in the Vietnam War. Um, McNamara. McNamara, the McNamara effect, where you obsess about what happens to be measurable, in that case the kill count, yeah. and you design a wholly inappropriate, in fact, counterproductive target simply because it's the thing you can measure, not because it's the thing that matters. And I can see that happening more and more, um, and it concerns me a little bit. Yeah, I know. because you can be left thinking you've made a wonderfully intelligent decision because at every point in the journey you made what seemed like a you know uh, a decision that reflected your preferences, but the real preferences you may have were never even asked about in the first place. And so you know it's rather like if you can imagine a market in which cars. Let's say there was a formula for buying a car, which we all used, which would be something like you know, fuel economy divided by acceleration, multiplied <laughs> by whatever it might be, number of seats. Number of cup holders. Uh, number of cup well, That is the American heuristic, emphatically. Now, if you had that, actually what would happen is, in the first few years, it might be quite a useful uh, mechanism. Over time, car manufacturers would game the system, and cars would become terrible. Because the cars would increasingly reflect the algorithm or formula that was used to decide not the myriad and various preferences of car owners, which encompass everything from aesthetics to, you know, uh, uh, to comforts to goodness knows what. And so cars would be truly awful under such a situation. It always bothers me actually because economists, because they have this efficiency fetish, they love turning things into commodities. And I hate commodities. So commodities actually totally inhibit innovation. They destroy brands, and they also destroy trust. Because if you think about part of the value of a brand is that you have reputational skin in the game that's attached to the thing you make. Carry on. And as a result, once you actually have certified beef, for example... It's in everybody's interest. I mean, this is what the Soviet Union discovered to a great extent when they had targets for factories. And the Soviet Union resisted having any kind of branding because they thought it was un-Marxist. And so, essentially, every rivet-making factory was targeted only by the quantity of rivets it made. So the incentive, since all these rivets were being poured into a central warehouse, the incentive was to make as many rivets as you possibly could uh, while at as low a quality as possible. Um, Stalin himself actually complained about the metrics problem because all the chandeliers in the Soviet Union uh, w- were absurdly, indeed dangerously heavy, because lighting factories were actually measured on output by weight, not by any, any other useful kind of measure. And so I think our, in our urge to computerize things, we're actually turning businesses and markets into something a little bit quasi-communist in that we're attempting to uh, measure the quality of something using objective means. Um, And the the problem of that is that the objective means, first of all, make the system easy to gain, and secondly, they create a kind of stasis, a kind of stagnant uniformity, because once something is certified beef, what incentive do I have to produce better beef? Or indeed, beyond meat. Okay? Now, if I'm a brand, I I produce better beef, and I'm rewarded because people enjoyed the beef last time, and they seek out Sutherland's beef second time round. If we're all buying certified beef, economists love that because it looks so gloriously efficient, and you have those lovely economies of scale. But actually, the consumer interests being lost, as is the incentive to innovate, as is also the fear of cheating.
0: Yeah, that's a huge uh, point that you make in the book. Very well.
1: And actually, it's, it's precisely because my name is attached to something. Samsung yeah. cannot afford to make a terrible television, okay? because the cost to their reputation and their ability to charge a premium would outweigh the short-term gain of selling televisions to a few gullible people. So and I'm, so once you destroy that feedback loop in the interests of scale, you, I mean, one of the reasons why banking was so trustworthy in the 1950s, if, if you take the era of It's a Wonderful Life, okay, not only did the bank manager know all his customers and all his customers know him, there's a missing link there, which is all his customers knew each other because he served a local area. And he knew that he only had to cheat one person, or maybe two. They might give him the benefit of the doubt with one. But he only had to get caught out cheating two fairly trivial customers, and his reputation was toast throughout the town. Game over. Okay? Now, we don't understand this. Because economics basically assumes away trust, no one looks at the dynamics of trust and how they really work. So, one, the value of intermediaries is completely Uh, disparaged by economics because you see them as an inefficiency in fact in informational terms intermediaries serve a very important purpose because there's a difference between 10 people buying from someone once and one person buying 10 times over time and so the 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 intermediary knows that his long-term interest is served by square dealing with the customer Now, that doesn't apply if you – this was an extraordinary thing that happened, I think, in the Marseille fish market, where they tried to replace fish dealers with a centralized auction system. Now, the fish dealers opposed this, unsurprisingly, but so did the buyers. The restaurants didn't want it either. They wanted to buy from their guy repeatedly in a series of ongoing mutually beneficial exchanges rather than buying centrally something that was certified steak. Or sort of skate, rather. You see what I mean? Absolutely. Because they realized that actually over time, um, relationships have a value because you're essentially seeking to maximize over time the positive sum game of the relationship. Once you make everything a one-shot transaction, it looks more efficient in an economic model. But actually, once you factor in the informational costs, it's not a good idea at all.
0: Well let's close and talk about advertising in general i you know I grew up mostly in the sixties and seventies as a young person and we were told of course that advertising was wasteful it was uh deceptive and it was um, it was a horrible business it was obviously a way that we tricked people people like you tricked others into buying uh, things they didn't need and I have I've never accepted that idea. Certainly as an economist, I always assumed it had some value. And one of the values, of course, we've talked a lot about, which is the brand. And that creates a trustworthiness. But the other part that you emphasize in your book, which I love, is that it, it, and you alluded to it earlier when talking about the restaurant and the sign and the menu, is that the advertising doesn't just um, tell people the product exists. It tells us something about the product, not just information. It changes the way we experience the product. So talk about that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in the book, I use this phrase, which I assume someone must have used before, but it appears they haven't. At least I've Googled it, which is advertising is very, very old. I mean, a flower is effectively a weed with a marketing budget. And the reason that advertising is necessary by plants is that the bee can only discover whether there's a worthwhile supply of nectar available in the plant by actually visiting it. And there is a mechanism that is necessary that delivers a reliable signal of promise of the presence of nectar, of which large petals and a variety of other um, signaling tools are are merely one form. And so the very fact that that advertising is an upfront cost is a reliable indicator of seller confidence. Because if the flower wasn't... expecting the bees to come back for a second visit, it wouldn't pay it to grow these huge great petals. The investment in petals only makes sense in the context of widespread repeat visits. And Actually, be- before I talk a bit more about that, I mean, I'll give a big shout-out and high-five to uh, Robert H. Frank for this, which is, I think there's a really important question, which is that looking at economics... Uh, through the eyes of an engineer is a rather dangerous practice. But actually looking at economic human economic behavior through the eyes of a naturalist is a much more valuable f- frame of mind. It's a much more useful paradigm, I think, to understand complex human behavior. And, th- and Robert Frank, I think his book, The Economic Naturalist, was a real eye-opener for me in this because it taught me there's more than one way of looking at these things. Yeah. And it's worth noting, by the way, that if you think about it, if you're attempting to create an economics that's like physics, which has universal, context-independent, uh, time-unchanged laws. Okay, now, that only works in a very narrow field of human activity. You know, if you're designing an aircraft, to some extent, that, that approach, where the definition of success is not remotely dependent on human perception or human interpretation okay, then that approach kind of makes sense. Now, I'd argue that it's an incredibly dangerous approach to try and overlay on anything where humans are involved. For for one thing, if you take my point about rising property prices in London, okay, people can respond to the fact that their house price is going up and up and up in London in one of two ways. They can either take the gains and move out, or they can stay put in the hope of future gains, but also for fear that if they do move out, they'll never be able to move back. And I think you see ba- basically both opposite behaviours manifested in London in response to uh, an insane increase in property and rent prices. Now, if you genuinely have a stimulus which can lead to opposite behaviours in human beings, okay, then <laughs> your hope of actually the very project of economics is fundamentally doomed. I would ask you because you're now here's an interesting case. Okay, I imagine I don't know enough about meteorology to make this claim definitively, but if there were some sort of step change in the climate, or that the climate, what is it they call it in complexity theory? They call it, it goes through a phase transition. Okay, and if something happened, okay, about the you know that the movement of, for example, the Gulf Stream changed in the Atlantic, right? meteorologists would change their models in response. I think that's probably right, isn't it? Okay? But what, you know, what they previously knew and were confident about would have to change. And I would argue that any science of economics has to acknowledge the fact that actually depending on context, circumstances, and indeed the habits and the behavior of other people, Models actually have to adapt and change all the time simply because in different circumstances people behave differently. And so it, it seems to me, I mean, I'm taking a very extreme view here, but I'm not sure that economics isn't trying to model itself on the wrong kind of science entirely. Well, ha- together, I, I nearly said, but that ha- would have been an airplane gag, so I'll pardon <laughs> that. Yeah.
0: Well, I happen, I happen to agree with you, but except there's a big accept there. So I accept the fact that economics is wrong to pattern itself after Newtonian physics i think it's wrong to see itself as a science and i'm glad you mentioned robert frank's book the economic naturalist which we uh, there's an episode goes back quite a ways it's but you can find it in the archives and we'll put a link up to it for this to this episode that book's about puzzles you know why are things the way they are why are why is why are women's uh, dry cleaning more expensive than men's and you know there are different answers to that some people think women are exploited by market-powerful dry cleaners who are sexist. Uh, as an economist, I find that to be an unacceptable answer, uh, and I think there are other answers. But even those other answers, that is, women's shirts are made of – blouses are made of different material than men's they are prone to damage. They might take longer. There's other answers about the size of the thing that the depressing is done on turns out that a woman's blouse is not dry cleaned in the same way that a man's shirt is there's a lot of it gets gets extremely complicated and the question is and of for, course to
1: men 90 percent of their clothes are semi-disposable yeah <laughs> c- compared to, yeah. compared say to a woman say, yeah. well there are a
0: lot of there's there's a thousand differences and what the economist tends to hone in on correctly or not is incentives and the opportunity cost of various choices now a good economist understands that monetary incentives aren't the only thing that matters they're pride, ego, reputation, a bad economist just says, well, you know, as you point out, you give the example in the book, well, we'll just bribe people to do what we want. We'll just lower the price. Now, we also understand as economists that, you know, if I go to a, if I insult the guy who's trying to buy my house, I'd be an idiot if I said, oh, it won't matter because I'll just lower the price. That'll compensate for the insult. A lot of people, when you insult them, just say, I'm not buying that house at any price and it w- that's not irrational. I had a face exactly like that. Of I didn't course.
1: buy a house because yeah. the guy tried to rook me for the fridge.
0: So it would, um. be st- it would be foolish to apply economics as a Newtonian science, Newton- like a Newtonian physics. At the same time, so it's an art, and it's an art that's complicated by the context, culture, ego, will, all kinds of phenomena, agency, responsibility, pride, reputation – It's still a good idea to keep incentives in mind. So it's foolish to apply economics blindly, but it'd be foolish to not ever look at it if we define economics as that sort of incentive-driven thing. But I want to come back. Well, You can respond to that.
1: Go ahead. No, I I mean, there is a vital thing, which is that um, what people care about. uh, I I just gave a little tip the other day, which I said, if you run a small coffee shop, close at five o'clock, but hover by the door for three or four minutes. If someone runs up desperate for a coffee, make a big show of unlocking the door and let them in and serve them. (laughs) And you've got a customer for life.
0: Yeah.
1: Equally, if you um, allow someone into your shop at two minutes past five or even two minutes to five, and then say, sorry, we're closed. You've probably lost someone for the next 10 years. I've boycotted two shops for precisely that reason. Um, And so, The thing is that humans respond to emotion. Emotion is derived from meaning, and meaning is derived from context as much as it's derived from um, uh, any kind of objective measure of circumstance. And so, you know, the same thing can be both an act of generosity or an insult. Bourdieu, the uh, anthropologist, makes this point that, you know, if you give someone a present, it's generally considered to be generous. It can be so generous a present that people are actually wary of accepting it because of the obligation it imposes to reciprocate. Uh, Equally, um, uh, you can, if you return a present, it's not actually a gift. It's a massive insult. And so we're so context sensitive in terms of our behavior that the attempt to create what you might call a single line mapping between the environment and you know uh, and behavior seems to me to be doomed um and uh, and yet I want to, to clarify once again what, what i am saying is that and what we advertising can be magical you see is in the same way that a television is magical which is tv manufacturers don't bother to produce the whole spectrum of colors because they know that human or higher primate vision is only sensitive to three. We have three types of cone in our eye and by stimulating those three types of cone at different ratios, you can generate the whole visible spectrum of color in the human head, in addition to, by the way, colors that don't exist in physics, like magenta, Uh, okay, which don't actually exist in reality. And so since what we care about and what determines our behavior uh, is a product of perception, and since perception, uh, for evolutionary reasons, has not evolved to give us anything like a close approximation of reality or objectivity, then designing things around stories is as important as designing things. If you sort of mean the story you attach to something is as important in giving it value as the thing itself. Does that make sense? That, yeah. you know, I think, I no, I think love that. an awful lot of if you take Rod I, I love Raj Chetty's work on um, what happened in Denmark when they reduced the tax break for pension saving. And uh what, what it revealed is that the majority of people just carried on saving as before. There was a small group of people who didn't, but they were super rich people with financial advisors who, let's face it, didn't need help from the government anyway. Um and so understanding those things, I think, is um, uh, understanding that actually objective reality translates, it, it passes through a kind of black box process before it starts affecting our behavior. And therefore understanding, partly through experimentation, partly through theory, what's going on in the black box, which I think is what you know, some, someone like Uber, as we mentioned earlier, did, is as much a source of, of value as necessarily trying to have more cabs on the street so they arrive sooner. And yet, strangely, two things are strange. We tend to regard any kind of perceptual hack as cheating. Not real. Yeah. It's not real. It's not valid. Okay. The second thing, which is stranger still, is that government in particular will resort to economic incentives or law, i.e., compulsion or bribery or fines. Before they'll even try persuasion. So, what I'm emphatically not, I wouldn't go, I'm not going to go up anywhere and say incentives don't matter. I mean, you know, the central lesson of economics is that incentives matter and they affect behaviour. And I wouldn't for a second want to go into any behavioural change challenge without having incentives as part of my armoury. Okay. But at the same time, what's strange is the order in which People of varying expertise are allowed to both define problems and then propose solutions to them. Now, I would always argue that persuasion is the one you should try first. Then you should probably try incentives, and then you should try compulsion. But government, by dint of the particular armory it has, and the fact that, as Richard Thaler said, I think um, uh, you know Washington is essentially a place where uh, run by lawyers who occasionally take advice from economists. Mm-hmm. I would uh, now. Here's a very philosophical way of looking at things. There's a wonderful thing about persuasion, which is if you have a good reason not to be persuaded, it doesn't, you, you can ignore persuasion. Okay. Now, I for a long time believed that it's silly. Okay, we should encourage people, just as a general behavior, to put their dishwashers, washing machines, and tumble dryers uh, on late at night where it produces less carbon than if you did it during the day or, or in the early evening. Okay mm-hmm. uh, right, But the interesting there's an interesting parallel here, which is the American reluctance to dry their clothes out of doors even in really hot climates Correct. is a weird one yeah. to me, but it has social stigma attached is yes, what I've been led I've been told yeah, 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 so it, it, so you know it, it seems a bit weird to me that people in Phoenix are putting their damp clothing in a tumble dryer in the first place, but let's park that for now, okay um now interestingly. If you try and use law or um, or incentives, they're going to be a blunt tool. Let's say you vary the price, so you make it very expensive to put your tumble dryer on, okay, at, let's say, 6 o'clock in the evening. And it's quite cheap at 1 o'clock in the morning. Same for the washing machine, same for everything else. Now, there's a problem there, which is there will always be a group of people who have perfectly good reasons not to comply. In that case, people who work the night shift. You don't want people uh, leaving their home Uh, at 10 o'clock, leaving a tumble dryer on, which might catch fire. Similarly, people who live in an apartment where their neighbors sleep directly below their washing machine (laughs) won't be making any friends if their washing machine goes into the spin cycle at 3 a.m., okay? It's a behavior you'd like lots of people to adopt, but not people who have a good reason not to. Now, the second you legislate, unless you legislate in an incredibly complicated way, okay, you're going to unfairly penalize people who have a perfectly good reason not to comply. The second you add that to the price mechanism so that, you know, people who work nights suddenly find themselves paying double to dry their clothes. It's unfair. It's unfair. Okay. Now, the glorious thing about persuasion and indeed social norms is that people who have a good reason not to comply don't get vilified. It's perfectly well accepted, and you're free to continue as before. On the other hand, people who have people who have a very good reason. I I, I tried to encourage the tax system to work where you're nudged to donate some of your tax rebate back, because my argument is it's much easier to get people to actually take less of a windfall than it is to get them to actually write a check for some extra money. Now, the nice thing about that system, okay, is let's say if you were to, I don't know what your tax rebate is, but let's say your tax rebate is a few thousand dollars and your children have left home and you're a reasonably um, prosperous tenured professor, as I hope you are, okay? Sort of. I'm not a tenured professor, but but that's okay. No, I'm
0: I'm a mere fellow at the Hoover
1: Institution, but I have a good good deal, so go ahead. (laughs) I'm fine. Roughly speaking, if you could have a car sticker where you said I gave 50% of my tax rebate back to in the UK, it might be the health service, for example. Okay, There would be slight pressure on, I think, the wealthier members of society with fewer calls on their money to do that. There would be no pressure on a 25-year-old with three kids to do that.
0: Yeah, and it would depend, you know, the, you wouldn't expect to see it on a minivan in the United States.
1: No, no, no in a battered minivan, you wouldn't expect that person to have, you know, to it, it have donated a significant amount, nor would you reasonably demand it of them. But equally, if you just come back from your fifth cruise of the year... Um I think we might say, you know, to be honest, I think I think I think Russ could have given a tiny bit of his tax rebate back to something.
0: Well, in that case, well first of all you have to know that in America the taxes don't work the way they do in the UK no, in terms I so, I so it's a little bit trickier but with the the significance of your rebate of your tax refund is a little different but I think what I would do in that case I just put my tax return on my car. And, and then people could see not only how much I earned, but how much I actually paid so they wouldn't feel so angry about my not giving the rebate. But I, but the point is that I think the more interesting point you're making is is this idea that norms have a flexibility that legislation yeah. doesn't, and it's an, a, an unappreciated point.
1: So, I, I mean, as I said, I suppose you're probably right, which is that the whole book is really about Chestertonian fences in that it's about things which – behaviors which actually may have a value even though it's very difficult to make sense of them uh, when looked at through a very narrow lens and so in a sense i suppose it's a conservative book in that sense in that it it believes that you should pay regard for long established things traditions even if you don't fully yeah. understand them you know don't chop people's appendixes out willy-nilly because there probably is a function as they later discovered
0: my guest today has been Rory Sutherland. His book is Alchemy. Rory, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette.